Hi lovely listeners, my name is Lisa Marie Imray and I am the host of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast, where each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and talk about any kind of true crime story. So if you are interested in true crime, which I bet you are since you're here listening to this amazing podcast, or you like drinking coffee, then feel free to give Coffee and Crime a listen to. It is available on all major podcast platforms. You can also find Coffee and Crime on Facebook or Instagram, where the DMs are always ready for you to slide in with your thoughts and feelings, recommendations, or anything true crime related. So until then, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will catch you guys over at Coffee and Crime. Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app, funded mainly through advertising. The podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and today we're going to discuss the case of Nelson Lewis Jones. And Nelson, he was just your average, energetic 11-year-old boy growing up in Hope, Kansas in 1990. Hope, Kansas is a small town in Kansas. And it was a place where everybody knew everyone. And I know that sounds a little hokey, but that's really what it was. In fact, the town's motto was, there will always be hope in Kansas. It was a type of place where parents weren't afraid to leave their son home alone for a few hours. When they had, the parents made the choice to let Nelson stay home alone on October 27th, 1990, they didn't realize that this choice was going to change their family's lives forever. And remember me saying that Nelson was every bit of the typical boy? Well, his sister, Melissa Bowles, she did an interview with WIBW. And Melissa, she was the middle of the three kids. And she said that Nelson, he loved the outdoors. She said he loved to fish, he loved baseball, and he was extremely competitive. He was fearless. She said that they would see who could go the lowest, who could jump the farthest, who could run the fastest. And that reminded me so much of myself and my brother. My brother John and I would always try to compete. And there was this one time we were at the park and we were like, okay, who can go and bend back as far as you can on the swings? Well, I won. I won so well that I skid my freaking forehead across the bottom of the ground and I had a really nice side scrape from my nose through the top of my forehead. Ran to my sister's house. My sister was older and she lived nearby the park where we were at and she had to try to help clean it up and stuff. I understand being completely competitive and trying to always win. I definitely got what Melissa was saying. 
and she described this one time where they would climb to the top of the watershed. I don't know if you young people know what a watershed is, but they had tied a water hose to a tree and they'd climb to the top of the shed and they would swing down like Tarzan. And she said he was always full of these kind of crazy ideas because he was always the brave brother. He was so brave that on October 27th of 1990, he insisted, he begged the parents to let him stay home alone while the rest of them took a day trip to Wichita. Now, Wichita is about an hour and a half from Hope, Kansas. Was a bit of a drive, but not a huge drive, but a little bit of a drive. And you got to remember, this is a time where, you know, it wasn't where you were just a cell phone text away. But he begged, and he begged his parents. It was his mom and his stepdad. And, you know, I guess, you know, what 11-year-old wants to take a day trip with his sisters and his mom and his stepdad, you know, unless they had really good road food. I don't know. Nothing does anything as well as, you know, Funyuns and beef jerky. But they caved and they let him stay at home. And they regretted that decision. Now, Melissa, during that interview with WIBW, she talks about she was nine at the time. And again, he was 11. And she said that the parents had never allowed him to stay at home by himself before, but they caved. And he was saying that he was supposed to stay, um, hang out with a friend in the neighborhood. And his sister, Melissa, she couldn't remember who the friend was, and she wasn't actually really sure who it was. And this is an interview from Melissa Bruner from WIBW. And the sister, she wasn't quite sure who, like I said, Nelson was planning to hang out with that day. But they go to Wichita for the day. And again, not where they're really checking back and forth. That wasn't a thing back in 1990. But they get home. They get back home around 6 o'clock that night. And they get there, and Nelson's not where they immediately check in, yelling for Nelson when they get in the door, and there's no answer. But there's a school carnival going on just a few blocks away from the house. They're like, you had a friend come over? I'm sure that's where he's at. So the family decides, we're going to go over to the carnival and find Nelson. Lisa, the sister, she talks about she, they all get up and they go over and they look around for Nelson everywhere. And it's, again, a small town, so it's not like this huge carnival. So they go and they look for him and nobody can find him. They go back home and Melissa's mom gets on the phone and she starts calling the neighbors and asking them if any of them knew where Nelson might be. So she's on the phone. She's calling around to the neighbors. And Melissa's younger sister, Melissa's nine, she has a younger sister, and the younger sister starts going room to room. But the parents are just thinking, Nelson's not coming when they call, so he's not at home. Because kids call and when the parents come home. So they didn't figure that there's a point of going and looking from room to room. Why would you? 
And, but the little sister, she's like, well, I'm going to go look for him. And while the mom's on the phone, the little sister comes out and she says, mom, I found Nelson and he, he doesn't look right. He looks all beat up. Melissa and the parents, they all go into the bedroom and they find Nelson. And Melissa says she remembers that he looked like he was, like, he was almost, he was kneeling on the bed like he was praying. And the upper half of his body, it was laying, kind of laying on the bed. And the only thing she could remember is he looked very pale and blue. And Melissa remembers that her mom walked around to the side of the bed and she grabbed his arm to feel for a pulse. And Melissa remembers to say very distinctly her mom saying, oh God, Dennis, and Dennis is a stepdad. And she's just saying, Dennis, he's dead. And she, her mom begins CPR. She begins to try to resuscitate Nelson. The stepdad, he's barefoot, but he starts hauling ass to go get police officers. Because again, small town, he's just going to go run to go get the police officers. But they're contacting, they're getting the police. Mom is doing CPR. And also during this interview, I thought it was really cool. And you can go to WIBW and we'll put the link also in this. You see Dickinson County Sheriff Jerry Davis. And he had only been on the job for a year. And he was just a patrol deputy at the time in 1990. But later on, he would take a closer look at this case as a criminal investigator. Now, what's really interesting is he is now one of the last ones at the Dickinson County Sheriff's Department. And he's the last remaining person who has personally worked on this case from the beginning. And his job at the time was securing the scene. But he is still putting his heart and soul into this case. What the coroner ends up finding during the autopsy is that Nelson had been strangled. A coroner had written an early report and they believed Nelson had been strangled with a small wire. Now, investigators had not been able to find anything at the scene. And again, as you guys know, at Crime Scene and Cupcakes, we don't glorify anything that has happened at the victim. And it's just horrendous what the family has to go through. And here it is, as we know, 30 years later. And this case is still open. Now, I had been looking through newspapers.com and the initial sheriff had said, you know what, we're going to find who did this and we're going to close this case. Yeah, it looks really difficult now, but we're going to blanket and we're going to interview everybody. and We're going to find who did this. And then you look back and 30 years later and there is still nothing. Now, there were several witnesses who had seen Nelson. They saw him playing with people. They saw him biking around town. And all of those people were interviewed. And you have to remember, this was the kind of community where everyone got along. Everyone knew each other. Everyone trusted each other. You have, there 
was a stranger, somebody would have noticed somebody out of the ordinary there. But there was no talk of seeing any strangers in the town at that time, which is absolutely terrifying because this is an 11-year-old boy strangled with a wire. So this is so shocking for this type of community. And I can't imagine how devastating this was for the little girl who went and found her big brother kneeling over the bed. And I can't imagine how shocking it was for Melissa when she went in with her parents. She goes on to tell WIBW that she was terrified. As she grew up, she was scared of the dark and she was terrified to turn 11 because she was afraid that she would get killed too. And I can't even imagine that, being terrified of your 11th birthday because that whole time you would be thinking you were next. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in your own home and not to feel safe. Melissa has said the feelings about not knowing who killed Nelson, they go back and forth and back and forth. At times, she's really angry because it changed her family. And we've seen that when we talk about these cases time and time again. Families are never the same after this. If a case gets solved, if a case stays unsolved, the damage that this does to a family, it tears them apart. It pulls them closer together. But the damage is still there. And as Melissa says, that damage was just irreparable. It changed her family. It changed the dynamics and it brought pain to everyone. The house where this happened, it's no longer standing in Hope, Kansas. It's a grassy lot now. Melissa's mom passed away without ever knowing who did this to her son. And I feel just horrible that she died with no answers. As you guys have heard me talk about many, many times, the not knowing is just torture. Now, Melissa, during this video, she was showing photos and there was even a poem her mom wrote about a child at Heaven's Gate with big blue eyes. And uh, I wish I could find that poem. I tried, I, I couldn't find it. Melissa, she is such an, a beautiful, amazing woman. And she still finds hope. Nelson died in hope and Melissa still has hope. Now, Nelson was chosen to be the three of hearts in the Kansas cold case deck. That is a new effort to get tips and unsolved cases by featuring them on playing cards. And Melissa is so grateful that Nelson's case has not been forgotten. Like I said, it's especially not forgotten by Sheriff Davis. 
And Melissa says that she often thinks about what her life would have been like had she been able to grow up with her brother. What kind of brother would he have been? What kind of uncle would he have been to her children? Would he have competed in sports in high school? Sheriff Davis had also told WIBW in an interview that the case remains very personal to him. He had stated that Nelson was an innocent victim and he deserves to have his story told. His family deserves to know what happened. Right now, Nelson knows what happened and the person who killed him. The person who killed Nelson, he knows what happened. Right now, those are the only two leads that they have. And Nelson is gone. He can't speak for himself. So hopefully the evidence will speak for him. And I thought that was really cool because as we've talked about time and time again, especially our local police department, you don't find police departments who do that. And it is so incredible that the D Dickinson Sheriff's Department will open with media and wanting to share about this case. Now, it's more than 30 years later, and we really want to help Nelson's sister, Melissa, find closure. Melissa wants to know the whys. Why did this person do this? And she just wants to be able to tell her family the why. She'd like to know, do they have a conscience? And she hopes that someday they will confess and seek forgiveness. As I said earlier, Nelson Jones is the three of hearts on the cold case deck. Now the cold case deck is from the Kansas Department of Corrections. And since its release, many of these cases have been able to have widespread media attention. It, they've even been featured on CNN. And not every tip received leads to resolution of a case, but someone usually knows something. And this is from Secretary Zamunda. Within Kansas correctional facilities and jails, we have segments of our population who want to do something good, perhaps atone for past mistakes, and they have information about unsolved cases. Our hope is that we receive actionable intelligence that leads to solving cases. This is from a media release from the Kansas Department of Corrections the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and this was done in partnership with the Kansas Association of Chiefs of Police, the Kansas Sheriff's Association, the Kansas Peace Officers Association, and they all developed the cold case playing cards. And again, this was a way of generating tips that may help resolve cases of unsolved homicides missing persons, or unidentified remains. As you guys may have heard on other podcasts, other states have solved multiple cold case homicides, missing persons, 
and suspicious deaths by making these cards available. Each card in the deck includes brief information about an unsolved crime, along with a phone number for anyone to call with information. The phone number is easy to remember. It's 1-800-KS-CRIME. These cards highlight case details in the hope that a person or persons familiar with a case will come forward with information leading to its resolution. The cold case playing cards will replace current decks of standard cards that are available in prisons and county jails. The decks will be placed in day rooms and other common areas available through the commissary for purchase by KDOC residents. What's really interesting to me is the oldest case is from 1976, and the most recent case is from 2020. Unsolved homicide cases are from Cherokee, Dickinson, Donovan, Finney, Ford, Franklin, Geary, Johnson, Leavenworth, Mitchell, Montgomery, Osage, Celine, Sedgwick, Shawnee, and Wyandotte counties. Missing person cases are from Leavenworth, Lincoln, Potawatomi, Celine, and Sedgwick counties. The unidentified remains case is from Geary County. For many of these cases, even years after investigative work has occurred, questions still remain. These questions need answers before a perpetrator can be held accountable. Now, this is from Director Thompson. It's our hope that by distributing this deck, more attention is drawn to these cases which we've proven to be true, as we've seen on CNN and multiple media sites. Someone comes forward with the details, and those details will move them one step closer to providing justice. Now, many people have asked, just as I had, why their loved one wasn't chosen to be featured on one of these cards. Now, as we know, Every one of these cases, they're important. They're not only important to us, they're important to the investigators that work so hard on the cases. They're important to the board members who put these cards together. And they're important to the Department of Corrections that were involved painstakingly with this process. The cases were chosen due to a long and exhaustive process. But that's why podcasts like these, websites like Uncovered, and all the different social media work that is being done are so important as well to fill in the gaps. All these cases need shared. The ones that have the card coverage and the ones that don't. I want to end with one more point. I want to end with the fact that I use the word cases. I notice that many people will call true crime cases stories, as in 
a victim's story. I've seen them name their podcast, Tell Me a Story, Here's a Story. I, I'm not knocking that. But I've had people ask me the fact that I will say case instead of story. And I want to explain that for a minute. I always share them as cases because here's the definition of story. The definition of story is an imaginary or real people and events told for entertainment or an account of past events in someone's life or in the evolution of something. A case is defined as an incident or set of circumstances under police investigation. Now, since I try to foc focus on unsolved cases that are under active investigations, that's why I prefer to discuss them as cases. When I hear the word story and I see the word entertainment used with it, and I know I, I do like the fact that I have some true crime podcasts are infotainment in a way, but the word story, these are not my stories. This is someone else's trauma. I don't want to glorify it. I don't want to profit from it. I don't want to trivialize it, and I don't want to assume it for my own. It belongs to the victim. It belongs to the victim's families. It belongs to the victims, everyone who had to go through that. It doesn't belong to me. It's not my story. It's not my journey. So that's why I prefer to never call it a story and that's why I I try to shy away from that word and that's why I call them cases they are a case they are a case because I want the police to see them as a case because I want them to take it seriously I want them to take it as this is not someone's story this is a case that you need to be working on this is something, this is a job that you need to be doing. And that's why I use that word. And the other thing that I, I wanted to discuss a little bit about, I've seen a lot, especially when I go on to Reddit, I see quite a few people discussing that they don't like unsolved cases because there's no ending to the story. And that is something that also kind of gets to me. Again, it's not a story. It's a case. And I know I take it a little personally. And I, I try not to go into keyboard warrior with my little thumbs flying there. But, and so many amazing people on Reddit as well. I, I'm learning Reddit that I need to have somebody teach me that as Patrick did TikTok. But... One, I, I, as you guys know with my background, I wanted to research why people feel that way. And I think I've discovered with a cold case, I think a cold case has been sanitized to people. Cold cases have happened 10, 15, 20, 
30 years ago. So people have removed themselves from the violence that happened that day. As in Nelson's case, he was strangled. His family walked into that room. They still feel the violence of what happened. But when people hear about it, he was 11 years old and it was in 1990. When people look at that span of time, it was so long ago, they don't feel the pain as closely as they would, let's say, the Moscow murders. I just want to remind people that no matter how cold a case is or how they might see true crime, just because there is no ending, it, it's not a story, it's a case. And they need to be told and they need to be told over and over and over again. The only way that a lot of these cases, as in the case of my friend, Krista Martin, the only way a lot of times you can get the police departments, when I get people asking me, what can I do? The only time you can actually get police departments, or let's say we might have other people who won't divulge information about the case or won't share things is you have to force them to pay attention. You have to force them to be willing to talk. And the only way you can force them to be willing to talk is to get that person to the forefront of social media. And as you've seen in so many cases is you need so many people sharing that story as in Nelson's case, as in Krista's case, as in Mary Krupper's case, if I only have five people sharing that case, Fasika Tadell's case, oh my gosh, you people have read it, have been so amazing getting that case shared. If you only have five people sharing that case, it gets lost and forgotten and nobody does anything. But if you get a hundred people sharing that case, law enforcement pays attention. Social media pays attention. And somebody a hell of a lot bigger than me picks it up. And they are the ones who can make a difference. And that's what we want. We need somebody to pay attention to these cases. There are millions of people out there, and some of you may not be interested in true crime, but if you take five seconds out of your day and share one true crime case, you could possibly be making a difference that could actually get that case solved. You don't have to be a true crimer to possibly solve a case. Yes, that is my dog in the background. That's Dinklage. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up because he's being loud. So, if you know anything about Nelson's death, or again, any unsolved case, call the Kansas Bureau of Investigation at 1-800-KS-CRIME. And again, remember, there will always be hope in Kansas. Thank you guys for listening. 
Don't forget, Krista Martin's birthday is this Monday, March 20th. And keep an eye out because we have some special and big things coming up next week. Thanks for listening. Be safe. Hey, listeners. My name is Kayla, and I am the creator and host of a new podcast called Dark Tales from the Road. We cover true crime, spooky, creepy, and ghostly stories, and I want to take you state by state and country by country to bring you stories you may not have even heard of before, and also learn some history on the city and the state where it takes place. So join me on the road as we discover dark tales. New episodes are posted every Wednesday. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a Patreon, all at Dark Tales from the Road. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a great day.